Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our Lord in heaven, we praise your generous and compassionate nature. You have no obligation to hear our prayers, but you do hear them, and you use them in our lives to strengthen our faith in you. You use them to comfort our broken, our broken hearts, and you use them to train us in righteousness. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your intercession on our behalf. We rejoice that we have a priestly Lord who is active and permanently on the throne, who we can go to with confidence, not because of our own goodness or righteousness, but because we know you apply your righteousness to all who confess you as Lord. So we pray in repentance regularly, including this morning. Father, we dare not approach you, your word, or your table of fellowship while harboring sin and rebellion. You give us no reason to expect that we can be ruled by fleshly desires or serve a consumeristic world and expect you to welcome us into your rest. You are rightly and justly a jealous God who wants his people to be pure in their worship. Lord, help us every moment of the day to offer acceptable worship to you with reverence and awe. For you are a consuming fire that will return to divide the world between those submitted to you and those in rebellion. Holy Spirit, in this moment, illuminate our minds to the sin that entangles each of us and help us to set in motion a thorough and complete repentance in keeping with your command to repent and believe. We thank you, Lord, for the other congregations that we join with in repentance and belief. Specifically, we pray for Selwood Church in Portland. Adorn their gathering with your presence this morning. Let their fellowship be rich in Christ and edifying to their faith. We pray that in the preaching, your words would flow to your people and that they would be well fed with words from you. And we pray for Trinity Church in Portland. Give them the same richness in Christ as their pastors lead them. Create fruit in that congregation as they celebrate your day and look forward to your return. For ourselves, we ask that we would each continue to grow as disciples. Keep us from resting on false foundations of past obedience if we are disobedient now. Help us to rely on you daily, including the daily bread of your word, not settling that we pursued you enough yesterday, but every day, as long as it is called today, help us as we exhort ourselves and one another so we would not be hardened by sin. Use the preaching of your word this morning to accomplish your good purposes. We pray these things together in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. You can have a seat. I am glad to see that none of you are wearing Chiefs jerseys or 49ers jerseys or Taylor Swift jerseys. <laughs> We have reached a milestone in maturity as a church. Uh, you can open up, if you're going to wear one later, it's okay. I'm not, I'm not going to beat up on you. Uh, you can open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning, chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at a section of text this morning that is, in and of itself, one thought, one pericope would be from verses 6 all the way through the end of the chapter in, in verse 16. 
But because it's so densely packed, I've decided to break it up into a couple of weeks. And so we'll be covering the first half this morning, verses 6 through 11, and the second half next week. Now, how many of you are familiar with the four stages of competence? Has anyone ever heard that before? Anyone in here? A few of you? Yeah? It's a model developed for business and vocational development and learning that originated around the 1960s, and it looks like this. Uh, This is up on the screen uh, here. At the bottom of this pyramid is unconscious incompetence. And this is a person who starts something new. All of us have been there. Uh, We start something new and we don't know what we don't know. We're incompetent, but we're unaware that we are incompetent. And this incompetence is not out of pride or arrogance, it's out of ignorance. And we have all been there, like I said, at some point in our lives, if not often. But then some training and learning takes place, and the person graduates to the next stage, which is called conscious incompetence. This is what would be called the level where humility comes rushing in, and we realize what competence looks like, and it dawns on us that we do not have the tools or the capability to achieve it, and so we start learning and trying new things. And this is the stage where massive growth can occur. This is what our kids go through all the time in school. This is what we go through when we're learning some new hobby or skill. After a great deal of time and habituation, when we begin to master some of these skills and are able to repeat them, we move into the stage of being consciously competent. We now know how to do something, but it still takes a lot of focus and brain power and self-control to achieve it. We have to focus and purpose to do it well. Well, then, after many cycles of habituating something, you begin to master it by feel or intuition and habit rather than conscious thought. And these are the things that are are more natural to you. Maybe some things may never be natural and you'll top out at that conscious competence, but some people in their gifting will kind of move into this place, uh, this next stage. And these are the masters of their craft who are so good at their craft, it is almost hard for them, maybe even impossible, to teach others how to reach the same level because they do so by feel, by instinct. But I would suggest to you that there's a variation of this. And in that variation, the person being discussed never really moves beyond that first stage, that first level. And this is because rather than simply being unconsciously incompetent, there is the added variable of arrogance. And this describes those that are arrogantly, unconsciously incompetent. It is is one thing to not know what you don't know. But if you add arrogance and an unwillingness to be taught into the mix you have a very volatile combination. For that person, in a sense, is blinded even to the possibility of learning the truth. For they are so enamored with their own opinion of themselves and their own knowledge that they are unteachable. Now, if any of you can think back to the early days of the very, very popular show, American Idol, anybody remember back that far? If you remember back to those early days, you can automatically think of some examples of people that are in this stage of arrogance added to that bottom level. The people that would audition that were most decidedly and empirically off-key and out of tune, and yet, when told this by the judges, would respond with an incredulous look of shock. And usually this was followed by a statement somewhat like, 
No, I know that I'm good no matter what you say because my mom and my friends told me so. You guys remember those episodes? Those were some of my favorite to watch. That just shows what a dark heart I have. Now, this person is dangerous because not only are they unconsciously incompetent, their arrogance make it, makes it so they can never move out of that stage of development into something else. For learning requires humility. If nothing else, a humility to admit that you do not know everything and you have room to learn. And in fact, what you do know may be wrong. In the words of the author of Proverbs, it's the difference between the fool and the wise. One believes they already know the answer and the other is willing to be taught even if the process of learning doesn't seem to make sense in the moment. Or maybe it's even frustrating. Now, this contrast of wisdom and foolishness is as old as humanity itself. This stages of learning and competence is as old as humanity itself. This was the issue in the garden. Rather than assume the role of the creature, needing to be taught by the creator, Eve assumed a position of authority, believing herself to be wise and deciding that she could determine truth better than the creator of that truth. And this is the state of original sin that has been passed down to man. In a sense, every human being is arrogantly, unconsciously, incompetent in the knowledge of how to bring salvation to ourselves. But even that would be putting it lightly compared to what the Bible proclaims. It says that we are so arrogantly, unconsciously incompetent at matters of righteousness and holiness and eternity that we are actually spiritually dead and blind to the truth. We have no option of even moving through the stages of competence. In our rebellion, we are grossly arrogant against our creator. And yet, we are so stubborn in our sin that we are often unaware that it even exists. Worse yet, we pridefully look at God with wonder as to how he could not be more awestruck by our goodness and specialness in the midst of the cosmos he created. This was the case in the garden. This is the case now. And this was definitely the case at the local church in Corinth, to whom Paul is writing the letter we are slowly but surely unpacking. Three times in this letter, he will pointedly refer to some, and in one case, all of the members of the church, as arrogant. And he will drive the blade of conviction even further when he points out that God's love in chapter 13 is the exact opposite. To love as God loves is to crucify arrogance. Men and women in the local church of Corinth thought that they were extremely competent in the things of the Lord. They were so arrogant that they referred to themselves as the spiritual ones. Some within the church even positioned themselves contrary to Paul because they believed that they had more wisdom than he did, for they were spiritual people. But Paul is trying to reorient their minds and hearts to the truth. He's beginning the letter by pointing out that they need to be humbled and brought low before the Lord in order to fix divisions in the church and bring unity of Christ in their midst. And last week, he continued this effort by pointing out to them that they are only saved by the power of God's salvation, initiated by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is not something of their own power or strength or charisma or even choice. It is instead the power of God's choice alone that saved them. 
But Paul can be misunderstood easily. Peter, for example, in one of his letters, notes that there are many who twist what Paul says to their own devices. So Paul, being a bit of a rhetorician himself, tries to directly face any criticism he might receive about only preaching the gospel and not preaching the so-called wisdom that the Greeks were used to. And Paul is going to now clarify that the gospel is indeed wisdom. He's been spending multiple stanzas we've been looking at saying, I'm not doing the whole wisdom thing. I'm preaching Christ and him crucified, the gospel. But not to be confused, he's saying, but this is still wisdom. In fact, this is the greatest wisdom. It is a wisdom from God. And he will point out today that it is a wisdom that can only be uncovered, only be recognized as such with the intervention and direct illumination of the Holy Spirit. It is not something that can be chased after, nor sought, nor grasped in our own strength. In doing so, Paul is setting up an argument we will look at next week that some in the Corinthian church have been given that wisdom by the Spirit, and those are the saved. And some have not, and those are the perishing. And only their willingness to listen to the word of God as preached by Paul, submit to Christ as Lord, and love one another in obedience will show which side of the distinction that they are on. He will talk about spiritual, and he will talk about natural people. But today, Paul will set the stage for this as he proclaims to us God's, that God's hidden wisdom of the gospel is revealed by the Spirit alone. He'll proclaim to us that God's hidden wisdom of the gospel is revealed by the Spirit alone. And this truth will be powerful for us in taking stock of the Spirit's work in our own lives and church, as well as helping us understand our part in evangelizing the lost. You see, one of the things that we're going to have to do is we're going to have to understand who the Spirit is not, which is how the Corinthians perceive him, and who the Spirit is, which is what Paul is trying to get across to them. That's one of the most unfortunate things about this book is it has been taken and used as if the Corinthians were still using it. Paul's whole letter is to try and correct them in how they're speaking of the Holy Spirit and using him in their midst. And so hopefully this will begin today. So let's read our text this morning from 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 11. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Would you, would you join me in prayer that God might help us understand what we're reading? Father, may your Holy Spirit work in the midst of this assembly of your people today. 
May he wipe the blinding scales of arrogance and pride away from our eyes. May he humble our hearts and may he interpret your truth to us so that we might truly understand the wisdom that can only come from you. Please bring your glory and holiness forth, if possible, from my fallible human voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that we see this morning in verses 6 through 8, I should say 6 through 8, not 7 through 8, my bad, 6 through 8, is the wisdom of God is concealed from sinful man. The wisdom of God is concealed from sinful man. Now, Paul just finished saying in verse 5, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, for the Greek hearers, they wanted Sophia. They wanted wisdom. But in their minds, all Paul gave them was the simple historical news of Jesus' death, resurrection, and enthronement over his church. I mean, you have to be kidding me. Give us the real meat, Paul. Give us Sophia. We want you to change our minds. We want you to debate and argue like the Greeks, scholars, and sophists. But in their minds, what Paul gave them was not enough. And yet, Paul points out that this was enough because they were saved. It was not the charisma of the messenger or the deep convincing argument of the rhetoric he used. It was the power of God working through the Spirit, illuminating the fact that this was truth, that Jesus was God taking on humanity, dying in the place of mankind, raising again to new life, conquering sin and death, and being enthroned as king over his people. And Before they dismiss what he is saying too quickly, he jumps in and says, but even though I did not use human wisdom, similar to the traveling sophists, the gospel I proclaimed is wisdom in and of itself, but it's a wisdom that only comes from God. Notice with me, he begins with, yet among the mature... We do impart wisdom. What would you think if you were the hearer? Immediately you wonder. What do you wonder? I wonder if he's talking about me. Am I mature? Do I have the wisdom? Paul is naturally causing the Corinthians to perform some introspection here to ask themselves whether they are part of the mature. For some, Paul will make clear, are in fact mature. Some are not. But this is not some subjective measure of spiritual maturity as we might do with a gifts test or something like that. His wording here is a bit sarcastic in tone. That's why I'm being sarcastic as well. Remember that the church was full of people claiming to be spiritually mature. They were claiming it. But what do you know about someone who voluntarily claims to be mature? They're most likely not. In essence, claiming to be more spiritual than others, other members of the church was getting them nowhere. And this is what was fueling the very competition and hyper-manifestation of spiritual activity that Paul will deal with later in the letter. Paul will make it clear that those who operate in this kind of spiritual one-upmanship are showing that they are, in point of fact, immature in things of the Spirit. They are spiritually immature. So how is Paul using the word mature here? The root word in the Greek for mature is teleos. It means those who have already reached the goal. It is a completion of sorts. But you might argue with me rightly, was anyone in Corinth, or for that matter, in any other church, including mission, complete? Have we reached teleos? Well, this is where it gets a bit tricky. In one sense, every true Christian is always a work in progress until the judgment seat. 
Can I get a hearty amen? amen? We are all constantly being sanctified until the moment we breathe our last breath. But in another very real sense, and this is Paul's whole point, every true Christian that is part of God's elect is already complete in Christ. There's nothing further you have to do to earn completion. You could see Paul speak to this right in verses 4 through 5 of chapter 1, when he was praying for them. Look at chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. You see, the Christian who has been given the grace of God by the Holy Spirit has everything they need and has, in a sense, been made complete. We are complete in Christ, praise God, but not yet fully complete in the sense of our bodily resurrection. We're simply waiting. So Paul's point is that those to whom the grace of God has already been given, those are the Christians, and therefore those are the mature. In other words, if you have the Spirit, you are already mature. You don't need to build your spiritual resume. You don't need to add more gifts. You've already been given gifts as a gift to the church. So Paul's point is powerful here. True Christians have been given the Spirit by the grace of God, and they, therefore, are the only group that can receive the wisdom that Paul is imparting. If a person has not been given the Spirit of God... They might claim to be a Christian, but they will evidence over the course of their life that they are not, in fact, actually interested in submitting their life to him. And that will prove that the entirety of their life has been spiritually what? Immature. Paul clarifies this point that is so needed in the church today. You and I are not the ones that decide our spiritual maturity nor work for it. God is the one that decides it by imparting and giving the Holy Spirit to you. Therefore, every Christian is a spiritual person. This is what Paul's trying to get across to the church at Corinth, and it is much needed in the church today as well. And Paul then clarifies quickly, this is not the wisdom as you think it is, Corinth. It's not the wisdom of this age. In other words, the wisdom of the world that surrounds us, it's not that. Nor is it the wisdom of the Jewish leaders or Greek leaders, nor of the sophists that the Corinthians crave. For they and their wisdom will eventually pass away in judgment. They are doomed to pass away. And that will leave left standing all that's left at that point after the judgment is the wisdom of God that is eternal. And notice his use of the word age over and over again. The wisdom of this age, the rulers of this age. He uses it once at the beginning and once at the end. But then Paul contrasts this to a wisdom that was decreed by God before this earthly realm ever even existed. And notice what he says. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed. He put forth as a command before the ages, in other words, before time existed, for what purpose? Our glory. The glorification 
of his new covenant people to whom he promised eternal life. And Paul then contrasts this to a wisdom that was, uh, Paul then contrasts these two wisdoms together, the earthly realm, but then also the realm of eternity. Now, there are multiple categories that fit within the wisdom of God. There's the wisdom upon which all creation was built, the the architecture, if you will, of the created world. Proverbs discusses this in great detail as well. There's the moral wisdom that is also put forth in Proverbs. But the wisdom discussed here is neither of those because those can be seen in creation. There are complete atheist scientists who can see the wisdom of the creation. And even occasionally in the activity of non-believers, we can see Non-believers live within moral wisdom as they act within a moral framework. In most of those cases, if not all, it's done for their own self-interest, but it still outwardly looks like wisdom. These are able to be harnessed by non-believers, maybe not understood as coming from God, but harnessed. But here, Paul is discussing a wisdom that he qualifies as secret and hidden. Only certain individuals will gain access to it. Now, just a quick note on this. There was already at this point in the church when he wrote this, a growing group of people teaching that only some followers of Christ could get the gnosis or the hidden knowledge. But this was the exact idea and teaching that was driving the hierarchical view of many in Corinth and what drives the charismatic and Pentecostal churches today that only some can have special gnosis, as only some have visions, only some speak in words of knowledge, only some speak in tongues. And this, friends, is a false, errant understanding that Paul will address in full throughout this letter. But here, he's sarcastically using this idea of gnosis to fight back against what the hyper-spiritual types in the Corinthian church would suggest. He says, no, we know what this wisdom is because he has just talked about preaching Jesus and him crucified. This is what Paul and his companions were imparting. The Greek here could be thought of as wisdom that is concealed and a mystery that is to be revealed. And what's to be revealed is the wisdom of God that was decreed and predetermined And decided in advance, it was the redemptive plan fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It is concealed because mankind, by our willful suppression of the truth, want to disregard God's authority and the need for a Messiah. We want to suppress the truth that we are not God and, in fact, lift ourselves up. And this was Paul's point in another letter to the Romans. We've gone over this many times, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, by their very sin, suppress the truth. Our sinful and arrogant rebellion, in which we think we know better than God, and in which we lift up the false wisdom of our age against his eternal wisdom, is what suppresses the truth of God's rule. And when Christ came, it is what made mankind believe there is no way that the life, death, and resurrection of Christ could be the saving work of a Messiah. The suppression of the truth said, no, he's just a good teacher, not a bad rabbi, but boy, don't follow him. It suppressed the truth. 
But this is indeed what Paul is pointing to, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And he is making the point that it is the truth that is concealed to the unsaved man and woman. Friends, look at these other texts from other letters describing the hidden and mysterious wisdom of the gospel. This is Romans 16, 25 through 26. When you put these together, you think, I, I think Paul was trying to get something across, right? Romans 16, 25 through 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. He's in a doxology here, but notice what he does there. He parallels together the mystery that was kept secret with what? The preaching of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Ephesians 3, 4 through 5. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery, same word as here in 1 Corinthians, of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Colossians 1.26. He calls the gospel the mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now question, how many of the true Christians that are God's elect are saints? All of them. You see, there's no Christian who has a special gnosis, a special higher spiritual understanding. To insist there is, is to create a church like Corinth that needs to be corrected. All saints, all Christians have been given the Holy Spirit and therefore the truth of God has been revealed to them. Our life is just an ongoing process of taking in that truth as we read God's word and have it illuminated to us by the Spirit. The gospel truth of what Jesus did in his redemptive actions is not only foolishness to the unredeemed, unconverted soul, it is voluntarily concealed and dismissed. By our sinful stance against God, we willfully put on the blinders so that we might not understand the truth. God's desire is for us to know his truth, but we push it aside in order to lift up our own wisdom or the wisdom of the age around us. And Paul concludes verse 8 with the obvious statement that there is evidence that it is concealed in the fact that the rulers of the age, given over to the spiritual powers of darkness at work in the here and now, crucified the Lord of glory. They crucified the Son of God. They crucified the savior and judge of creation. Do you think it was concealed from them who Jesus was? If they had understood who Jesus was, they never would have brought that level of wrath upon themselves that now awaits them. They were blinded to the truth just as all of mankind is blinded, voluntarily, by choice, except for the intervention of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the state of every member of humanity if God does not graciously intervene. We are all willfully condemned to our voluntary, arrogant, unconscious ignorance. And yet so many, even self-proclaimed Christians, hold God in derision as if the weight of responsibility is upon him for not making it clear enough. 
No mankind has stiffened its proverbial neck so as to not hear, not see, and not understand. And friends, God would have been righteous and just to leave us in this state and never push through our arrogance to reveal the truth. He would have been right to judge and punish all of humanity for all eternity in eternal conscious torment. And all creation from hell would cry out, righteous and true are your judgments, O God, and you are good. Perhaps this is you sitting here today. Perhaps this all seems like a bunch of foolishness to you. What I'm preaching sounds harsh and mean and could not be the God that you imagine. And you can't understand why these intelligent people around you are giving their lives over to a man who can't be seen from 2,000 years ago. You can't see the point in following a leader who was humiliated and killed, and you can't see the point in following a God that could be so mean as to condemn people to hell. But friend, this is because your heart and mind are blinded to the truth. You're blind. But you're here today because God has had mercy upon you, and he wants to change that. Cry out to God and ask him to give you understanding and sight into his salvation. Ask him to do a work within you by his Holy Spirit so that your heart of stone that is shaking the fist at God for the truth of his word can be softened into flesh so you can receive it as the merciful, gracious gift it is. For once your eyes receive the sight of spiritual wisdom, you will understand that Christ is not only the sacrifice that brings you forgiveness of your sins, but he's also the Lord and King who loves you and wants a relationship with you and has called you into it. Brothers and sisters, this blindness is the state of the world that surrounds you. Men and women and children who are so blinded by their own sinful rebellion and arrogance against God that they cannot be reasoned into the kingdom. I've had so many conversations with so many of you, my heart goes out to you where you say, I just don't get how this person I've been witnessing to forever doesn't get it. They're dead and blind and damned by their own voluntary rebellion against God. They cannot be convinced to submit their lives to Christ by reasoning them into the kingdom. They cannot be convinced to submit their lives to Christ by your kindness or works of service. They must be told the gospel so that the Holy Spirit can either do his work of opening their eyes or do his work of hardening their hearts. And either way, the word of God accomplishes its work. And so friends, we must therefore go and preach the gospel of Jesus and him crucified to everyone and anyone we know while on our knees begging that God would reveal his wisdom by his spirit in their life. The natural response to this truth of the fact that the wisdom of God is concealed from sinful man might be, well, Hans, what's the point? 
If God is going to save who he's going to save and harden whom he's going to harden, what's the point of preaching the gospel? Well, brothers and sisters, the point is that it is through the proclamation of the gospel, the secret and hidden wisdom that Paul himself was imparting, that the Spirit will work to reveal God's wisdom and salvation to those that are the Lord's. And that is where we don't know the outcome, we simply know the task. And that's the second half of this section, where we then see that the Spirit of God alone can reveal the gospel. You preach it, I preach it, but the Spirit alone is the one who does the revealing. Let's reread verses 9 through 11. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Friends, if there was no concealment, there would need to be no revealing. He's revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. You and I don't know whether or not the person in front of us is one that God has chosen and decreed to be his own or not. If this person in front of you is one of Christ's own, then the grace of God that goes before the moment of salvation, the prevenient grace of God, as it's called, will be worked out by the activity of the Holy Spirit. This is the only way the wisdom of salvation goes from being concealed to understood and accepted. In other words, no human in their own faculties will work it out through reasoning of their own. This was the entire push of the movement in the 1700s and 1800s and onward of taking the gospel to the nations. There was a, a need to do so because these people are literally going to hell if we don't take the gospel to them. Do you think that way of the person that's sitting in the next cubicle? Or your classmate next to you? Or your neighbor next to you? Well, maybe if I'm just nice enough over decades, eventually they'll come and they'll say, well, what is it that you believe? No, you need to go to them. Go, therefore, and make disciples. You need to tell them the gospel because the gospel is how salvation works. It's the only way the wisdom of salvation goes from being concealed to understood and accepted as the prevenient grace of God moves in, prepares the heart, the gospel is preached, it's accepted, and that person is saved. You see, this is from Paul's statement to the Roman church. It helps us understand what's going on. Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that is set in the flesh, on the flesh, is hostile to God. Guys, hostile means hateful, violent, against for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot find the way to salvation. There are no seekers. There is only one seeker, and it is Christ. And so God sends his Holy Spirit to replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh that can understand his wisdom in those whom he has covenantly decreed as his own since before the world began. It is so important, brothers and sisters, that we understand what the work of the Spirit actually is because we will see that the Corinthians had developed a belief in his activity that was errant. They were so worried about all the cool party tricks that were happening on Sunday morning that they missed the entire point of the Holy Spirit, which is to go and illuminate the gospel to the non-believer. 
to make them a believer. Listen to the words of Jesus in describing the work of the Holy Spirit. This is from our earlier reading in John 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. But anytime this theology that is evident in Paul's writings is presented, someone asks the question, if God's spirit enacting grace is how salvation is accomplished, and God chooses whom he will save rather than our choice, why doesn't God just save everyone? Why didn't he just send his spirit to everyone? Well, there are a number of answers to this question, but let's see how Paul addresses it. Paul answers, as if being prepared for this question, answers this question with his quote here in verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. This is taken from Isaiah 64.4, and it is quite often used wrongly by people to describe the afterlife or heaven. Have you ever heard someone quote this as talking about the really cool amusement park that God has set up for us after we die? You don't even know how cool it's been. Really? No eyes seen, no ears heard? This will be awesome. Is that what Paul's talking about here? Is he talking about the afterlife? Innately, no, he's not. Why don't you turn with me to Isaiah 64? Remember that Paul is a rabbi by trade. He is a, uh, a Pharisee. And so the way that he would have referred to Scripture is to take a quote, but then refer to the surrounding context. And the surrounding context is what he's bringing into this idea right now. This is Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no one has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways, Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We've all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. 
There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Friends, what he's saying there is remember your covenant. You promised that you would save us. Rely on your faithfulness. Verse 10, your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? So do you want to use that verse to talk about the cool amusement park that is heaven? Friends, Isaiah was a Calvinist. There's no one that chases after you, Lord. It's just that Calvin came along and a bunch of his people put, their, put his name on it. This is God's theology, not Calvin's. We were so deep in our iniquities and our sin and our chosen rebellion against God that God said, you don't want me around, I'll hide my face from you and I'll let you just sit in the hand of your iniquities as it crushes you. And so what are they begging God to do? Intervene. Rend the heavens. We can't make our way to you. Please do something and do it based upon your covenant faithfulness because you are faithful to the people you promised yourself to. Friends, you can see that he pulls this, Paul pulls this from verse four. God is just in pouring out his wrath on all mankind and especially those that declare to be his but have forsaken his way. And he's just in this because even our best attempts at reconciling our sin, those days where we think we're really doing great. Oh man, I listened to Caleb on my drive to work. I prayed a little bit. I was nice to the person I'm usually mean to. And I haven't sinned at all yet today. Those days are as clean and holy and pure as a polluted garment. And I'm not going to be grotesque here, friends, but this is the garment that a woman would place under herself during her monthly cycle. That's what this word is in the Hebrew. That's what our best works at earning God's favor are. Because we cannot save ourselves, we cannot choose God. Only his rending the heavens will come down and save us. Shall we be saved? In other words, we don't deserve to be. It's only the grace and mercy of a faithful God. Isaiah puts God and his creation in the appropriate view, but now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are our potter, and we are all the work of your hand. Friends, is there ever a moment where a potter who decides to crush clay that has not worked out, where the clay can respond back and say, how dare you? No, and yet we do it all the time. For God has the right and would be just in annihilating all of mankind. 
And the progressive theologian would cry out and say, but we are your image bearers, therefore you must submit to us. We have the right to exist. And then he reminds us, you bear my image, not the other way around. And when you pervert my image, I'm just in dealing with it. He is the right and would be just in annihilating all of mankind. But by his grace, by his mercy, he has acted to bring salvation to his covenant people. His wrath will still apply to the many, but his grace will apply to the chosen few whom he has promised salvation since before creation existed. And in his faithfulness and commitment to his covenant promise to his people, he will deliver us. Notice, though, from verse 4, Paul adjusts some of the wording. If you go back to 1 Corinthians and look at it, you can see that he adjusts some of the wording. Rather than the statement of calling God the one who acts for those who wait for him, Paul says, God has prepared this salvation for those who love him. The preparation, speaking to God's decree from eternity past that this would happen and his providence would occur to bring it about. The love that we have for him, dear friends, even this is a gift of God given to us. How so? Romans 8, same author said it. We have no ability to love God. We hate God in our natural self. So what did God do? He gave us new hearts. He translated our hearts from those hateful towards God to those who love him. Even, friends, the love that you display here this morning that you have for God, even that is not your own choosing. It is a gracious gift. You see, friends, Paul's entire point here is that without the insight of the Holy Spirit, we suppress the truth and make God subordinate to his creation and demand to know why he won't answer to our view of our own goodness and righteousness and justice. We hold him in derision as if he has sinned against us by not submitting to our will, not making us successful and healthy and wealthy. We cry out at him and say, Lord, how could you let people starve? How could you let violence exist and war exist? And the whole time he's saying, you think this was my plan? In one sense it was, but you're the ones who brought it about. Our wisdom says that we are innately valuable and God must answer as to why he wouldn't save all of mankind. That's man's wisdom. God's wisdom, however, points out that he is the creator, we are the creation, and we have rebelled against him. So any measure of grace or mercy to even one minuscule human being fills the entire cosmos with the knowledge of his grace. We must, therefore, rightly answer to his holy and just wrath. And even more amazing is that this wisdom didn't just stop at his justice. God's wisdom also declares that amidst this just wrath, he would show his compassionate, merciful, and gracious character. And to show this, he has saved 
some from every tribe, nation, and tongue under heaven from every age of mankind. The Spirit will reveal this truth to you, dear friend, or you will be blind to it and hold God in contempt for being unjust and unwilling to answer to mankind's justice and high view of ourselves. I think I've told you about this story, but there was someone I was talking to where I shared this gospel, the gospel, and they are a self-proclaimed believer. They go to church every week. They serve in all sorts of outreach ministries. And they said, that is a horrible God. I said, what do you mean? This was the exact quote. There is no way I could believe in a God like that. Who's the authority in their life? God has to answer to me, this person was saying. Friends, if, if this is present in your life, only God's grace can change your heart. Only God's grace can illuminate what Paul is saying, what Jesus says. And so we must beg him to do so and then embrace his word and his people by his spirit and then we'll watch what happens. The gospel message of these things that Paul declares in verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches even the depths of God. These things are what Paul is talking about, the gospel of salvation. For it is the Spirit that knows the depths of God's plans and activity and will, and without the Spirit declaring the gospel to a person, no one can comprehend the thoughts of God. Because, friends, what I have just given you, I know, does not make sense. You ever noticed how people innately put a statistic on how to grade God as to whether or not he's just? And what is that statistic if he saves 51% of people? You ever notice that? It's inherent in most people's understanding of salvation. Now, why is that as Americans that we would say God is only gracious and just if he uses 50, saves 51% of people? the majority, because we've grown up in a democracy where we have the power. We cannot fathom a God who would save a minority, but that's exactly what Jesus said. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction, narrow, and few are there that find it, that will find salvation. So friends, it's the Spirit that declares the truth of the gospel. The Spirit illuminates the gospel. That's Paul's whole point. And if you are a person who the Spirit has illuminated the gospel to, you are the mature to whom we are imparting wisdom, he says. Not a wisdom of this age, but a wisdom of Christ. For it's the Spirit alone who is able to understand this and impart it. And so this has some ramifications for evangelism, doesn't it? First, a person will not find their way into the forgiveness of God unless the gospel is preached and the Spirit works to make the scales fall from their eyes. Friends, this should actually make your life easier as evangelists. Amen. So what must we do to declare this gospel? We simply state it. And we pray that the Spirit is working in that person's life. And when it's not received, we don't go, boy, I have to work harder. Gee, I guess I didn't communicate it well enough. Boy, I better go get some better spirituality in my life. I, I better get some more Holy Spirit juice, right? Because I got to really push it forward. This person isn't quite getting it. No, we just simply go state the gospel. Friends, that's why we ask the questions we do in membership. Do you know the gospel? You state it to us? We go, great. You're an evangelist. Go. 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 Go preach the gospel. 
because that's all is needed. Prayer that the Spirit would work in their life, preaching the gospel. And secondly, it makes our tactics of evangelism very specific, because no longer will we waste time on convincing people to be saved or spending years slogging it out in the trenches of apologetics with them. For we realize that they will be or they won't be, and the way to find out is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. No one will find their way to the truth without the Spirit. There are not multiple ways up the proverbial mountain to God. There is no mountain. In our innate original sin, we are dead in the ground, and God is in his royal throne room. For salvation to occur, there is only God rending the heavens and coming down to impart his wisdom to the heart of a person through the Holy Spirit. So friends, right now, on your phone, in your journal, write down the name of the person that you need to be praying for, that God would do this work, that God would break their heart, rip their heart of stone out of their chest, and put a new one in, so that you can go to them and say, do you know that you are dead in your trespasses and sin, and without God's intervention, you are damned to hell? Hans, I don't think they'll accept that. They will if the Holy Spirit's at work. They won't if he is hardening their heart. So friends, who do you need to pray for that God would do this? Who do you need to present the unabridged gospel to so the Spirit can work? These words of Paul in chapter 2 present us with a mission. Will we carry it out as God's emissary and lead with the Holy Spirit? Or will we sit back? Now let's notice one more last thing before we end this morning. Do you remember the situation in Corinth? Let's read ahead a bit to remind ourselves of it. This is from 1 Corinthians 14, 26, and you can picture in your mind's eye what Sunday morning was like at the church of Corinth. He says, what then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, each a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Now, just so you know, if you go and read the context around this, this is not a good thing. Kelly and I once attended a uh, Pentecostal church where in the middle of worship, they said, Okay, just let the spirit flow, guys. Let the spirit flow. Everybody go ahead and give worship to the Lord. And so the bass player was over here playing something, and the singer was singing something, but it's all different. And then there were even people who were singing in tongues, ecstatic utterances that have no verbal understanding or structure. And after I dug Kelly's nails out of my knee, right, because she's gripping on for dear life, like what is happening right now, we got up and left. Why? Because the spirit is nowhere to be found in that place because there's no obedience to God's word. There was no building up there. There was just people locked in their own little view of them and their soulmate Jesus. Had nothing to do with the edification of the body. This is what the Corinthian church was like. Everybody on their own page of their own spirituality with Jesus and people vying for levels of hierarchy. The people of the local church at Corinth thought of themselves as spiritual people, but they didn't think in terms of the collective of the body of Christ. They ranked themselves as more or less spiritual depending upon which spiritual gift they had. And so their gatherings were just people trying to outdo one another in being spiritual. Certain members who spoke in ecstatic utterances or had words of knowledge would look down on other members for not doing those things. Or at a bare minimum, they thought, it, they thought themselves a special spiritual class of people. They judged their spiritual nature on their behavior and activity, and promoted themselves as knowing God better than others, and then looked down on the rest as if they didn't have the Holy Spirit. 
They even looked down on Paul because of how spiritual they were. We have the same problem in today's church. Certain churches claim to be more spirit-filled. Others, they will claim, are quenching the spirit. If they don't do certain behaviors or promote a certain Pentecostal or charismatic view of spiritual gifts in the church. But friends, these are man-made and man-manifested attempts to claim superiority and rank in the church. They are not, as we'll find out in chapters 12 through 14, God-driven activities that serve to love and edify one another. So who are the spiritual people Paul is talking about? Who are the actual spiritual people, the mature Well, contrary to what the Corinthians believe, Paul's going to talk about this in great detail next week. But for now, let's just think about it in terms of what Paul says in his various letters. Remember the quote I presented to you from Paul's letter to the Colossians. This is Colossians 1.26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. All those who have been saved by the Holy Spirit are the spiritual the truly mature, the ones he mentioned in his prayer, enriched in every way by the Spirit. That's you. Friends, if you have had the truth of the gospel illuminated to your heart and mind, you are a saint. You are a chosen one. You are elect. You are God's people. And you are complete in the Spirit. You see, brothers and sisters, in the true gospel-centered church of Jesus Christ, there is no hierarchy of more spirit-filled or less spirit-filled. For every true Christian is only a Christian, a person accepting of the gospel and Christ's lordship because the Spirit has allowed them to be and equipped them to live so outwardly. So if you are in Christ, you are a spirit-filled person. You have access to the thoughts of God because the Holy Spirit will now slowly but surely illuminate the word of God in your mind and heart. And here's how we know what the thoughts of God are. They have been given to all of us, so there's no confusion. There is no longer special revelation given to only the supposed few who have somehow tapped into the Spirit in a different way. Friends, as we'll learn, that is a pagan and errant view. Be careful of anyone who says that they have that power. They are deceived. If you are one of Christ's chosen people, you have all been given the Holy Spirit so that you can know the truth of God's hidden and secret wisdom now declared clearly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's what we come to celebrate every Sunday. Isn't that a glorious truth? that every Christian is filled with the Spirit and given the depths of God's wisdom. Isn't that an amazing gift for which we can give glory to God? God's hidden wisdom of the gospel is revealed by the Spirit alone. And if you are here today and know that Jesus is Lord and King, you know so because that has been given to you by the Spirit. And now we're to go forth from this place and declare that gospel to our family and friends and neighbors and pray for the work of the Spirit in their lives, that he might do the same for those that surround us. Let's do that as we go forth from this place. Let's not just let it go in one ear and go, yeah, the Lord will take care of it. No, the Lord will take care of it by using you as his ambassador to preach the gospel. 
So pray for those people that need salvation. Deliver the gospel to them. Bring them to this church to be part of it. And let's walk together into the eternal arms of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's now move into communion where we remember the new covenant in which we are a part of the saving grace of Christ and the saving work of the Holy Spirit all by the decree of the Father. And let's give thanks for we know that without his gracious and sovereign choice, you and I would still be dead in our sins, separated from our creator and blinded to the beauty of God's glory and salvation. Friends, this teaching... It's heavy, isn't it? I can feel the weight in the room. Can you feel the weight in the room? But this teaching should result in an application of intense thanksgiving. Because Paul says, without God's grace, we would be ignorant and not even know it, condemned to hell. But because of God's grace, we are not that. Amen? And so what level of thanks should then come from our mouths as we now sing as we now participate in the table of the king who has invited us into his presence, there should be no end of thanksgiving, no end of glory, because without God's intervention, we would be rightly damned. But God has intervened. And so we can now sing praises to his name. Amen? Amen.